Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, give you the opportunity to make sure that you're in fellowship and ready to study the word, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're just thankful that we can come together this evening. We're thankful for the fact that we have new life in Christ. We're thankful for the fact that we have a, an eternal salvation that has been purchased not by anything that we have done, but it has been purchased free and clear by Jesus Christ upon the cross by his substitutionary death and that he has provided everything for us. Therefore, there is nothing we can do, we can look at in our own lives and say that we did something to earn or deserve that salvation. This is something that is freely given by you and is given free to us in that we do not work for it. Father, we're just thankful we have the opportunity to, to meet here, to have a wonderful facility, to have all of the many opportunities that we have at this church, this congregation, to study your word and to be able to fellowship biblically together around your word, around the fact that Jesus Christ died for us. And we look also, we look forward to this weekend with our picnic and, and we're thankful for eight wonderful years as a congregation and all of the many ways in which you have provided for us. And Father, we pray that as we study this evening, you will encourage us and strengthen us and help us to focus upon your word. And may we come to an even greater understanding of who you are and what you've provided for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in Romans chapter 8, or 5 rather, Romans chapter 5, and tonight as we get into the next uh, section of verses in Romans uh, 5 verses uh, 6 through 11, the focus shifts a little bit, and it's important to understand how this focus shifts because it helps us to understand what Paul is saying, where Paul is going, and helping us to understand the implications of our justification. The theme of Romans is this word, dikaiao, uh, the verb to be justified or declared righteous, dikaiosune, righteousness, and it's and it's the verb has the idea of being declared just or to be declared righteous, and Romans is really all about this idea of how do sinful people become or de- declared righteous? How do we become righteous in God's sight? And so these previous chapters have focused on God's free gift of righteousness through the through Jesus Christ and his death and that we receive it by faith alone as indicated by the prime example in the Old Testament of of uh, Abraham and that Abraham believed God and it was uh, counted or imputed to him 
as righteousness. And then as Paul develops that and begins to speak of the benefits of justification, he talks about the fact in verse 1 that we have peace with God. And then if you look in your uh, Bible down to verse 11, he doesn't mention anything else about peace with God. And the whole concept of our peace with God is related to another theological word, which is reconciliation. And that word reconciliation we find is the very last word in verse 11. And so this section from 1 to 11 is an integral section building around this idea of our oneness, our being brought together with God. And this is indicated by these two great words in the New Testament, peace that we have with God because we're justified, and reconciliation, which means that there was enmity or hostility between uh, man and God, and now there is uh, a restoration of uh, harmony between man, the sinner, and God, who is the righteous judge of the universe. Now, the word that is used or that was coined in English to express that concept is a word that really doesn't have a counterpart in either Hebrew or Greek, but it was just sort of one of those words that was coined or put together in English in order to communicate this restoration of harmony, and that's the word that's in the title of the message this evening, and that's the word atonement comes from a Greek word, I mean, comes from English attempt to put this together, and it was, if you break down the three syllables, at one meant, at one meant, and that is bringing the two who were opposite or at enmity with one another uh, to the position of being united or being one. So this really does speak of the atonement in that strict sense of being related to this concept of peace and reconciliation. There are a lot of different words that are used in the Bible to talk about different aspects or different dimensions to the process of what we refer to in a broad sense as salvation. There's uh, redemption, propitiation, justification. There is our positional truth or position in Christ, uh, regeneration, imputation, justification, all of these different words. But it, it's these these two words, atonement and reconciliation, that sort of sum up uh, all that is accomplished uh, by Christ on the cross. And so we speak in uh, the entirety of what he did on the cross as uh, the atonement or reconciliation. Now, those two ideas, peace with God, verse 1, reconciliation, verse 11, sort of bracket uh, this section. So we know that that's what... Uh, Paul's talking about is one of the first benefits of justification is this fact that we are unified or united with God because the sin penalty is paid for and because of faith in Christ we have been we have received the perfect righteousness of Christ and so now there can be harmony peace between God and the sinful creature because the sinful creature has now been given uh, given righteousness. Now, as Paul begins this section, as I pointed out before, he's drawing a conclusion, verse 1, therefore, and then he begins to talk about the fact that we have uh, what we have in Christ and that we stand in this grace and rejoice in the, in the hope or the confidence of the glory of God. And the focus here is on this uh, concept of hope that is mentioned in verse 2, mentioned again in verse 4, and mentioned again 
in verse 5, the conclusion of which is the first verse that I have. I put 5 through 11 up here so we could just catch the whole concept. Now, hope does not disappoint. And this is an important verse because it pulls together two key concepts, the words that I've underlined there. Hope does not disappoint. The Christian hope, biblical hope, never disappoints us. It's not something that fails. It's not something that doesn't work. Hope is a confidence in a certain future because our confidence is in the God who's behind the promise. So our hope never disappoints us. Our confidence is never misplaced because it's placed in God. And Paul gives the reason for that as because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And I pointed out last time that this word for pouring out is in the perfect tense in the Greek, which indicates it's a completed past tense action, and the focus is on the completedness of this action in the past. So that tells us that this is talking not about something that is going on in the current experience of the believer. It's not something that's talking about something that just generally happened in the past, but it's very specific in saying this is something that happened in the past and its its uh, occurrence was completed in the past so that the results of that continue on into the present. So that tells us it's speaking of a uh, of something that took place at the time that we were justified, that the love of God was poured out uh, in our hearts. And I you talked about the phrase, the love of God, that this means the love from God because this is what God, uh, the Holy Spirit, is pouring out to us. And as we have this realization and come to learn about all the dimensions of God's love for us, then it builds in us an ongoing confidence or certainty in our future. And I spoke about last time I went through the uh, uh, 10 problem-solving devices, spiritual skills, stress busters, different terms for them that focus on the key element of hope as a transitional skill that as we master it, that's what moves us from a spiritual adolescence to a uh, spiritual maturity. And when we study the Word and as we grow and as that future becomes more real to us so that it is more real to us than our current experience, it has a way of transforming how we handle our present experience. And I ran across a story not long ago that illustrates this in the life of an individual who was a spiritual hero, one of many spiritual heroes during the time of the Second World War. Uh, it refers to a man by the name of uh, William uh, Sangster, and he was uh, born in England in 1900 uh, in London, and he began attending a Methodist church when he was about nine years of age, and then when he was 12, he understood the gospel, and he believed that Jesus died on the cross uh, for his sins. And like many, when they first come to believe that Jesus died on the cross, they understand their salvation, they understand the free gift of uh, salvation that God has given them, he began to tell all of his friends about his newfound uh, salvation. This uh, led him, he was so enthusiastic, and God obviously gave him the gift of pastor-teacher that by the time he was 15 uh, years old, he began to preach. He preached his first sermon on February the 11th, 1917. 
After finishing what we would call high school here, he went into uh, the Army, and then uh, later he went to university and received his training uh, for the uh, uh, Methodist pulpit and began to pastor a group of Methodist churches in England. And back at that time, we would they were called the circuit. So he had more than one congregation he was responsible for. And so on a Sunday morning, he would preach early at one church and then ride uh, by horseback to another church, then ride by horseback to another church, preach there in the afternoon, maybe another one in the evening. So he had a uh, very full Sunday. And many of these Methodist circuit riders, both in England and in the United States, back uh, in the 19th century and on into the 20th century, usually worked themselves uh, into exhaustion. And that was true for, for, uh, for Sangster. And he, but he developed his skills as a preacher and had quite a reputation so that by 1939, the, just on the eve of the beginning of World War II, he became the pastor of Westminster Central Hall, which was a Methodist church that was very close to Westminster Abbey in London. And during his very first message, which was at the beginning of September of that year, he announced to his congregation that Britain and Germany were now officially at war. He turned the church basement into an air raid shelter, and for the remainder of the war, he began to uh, develop various uh, various teams in the church that would uh, minister to those who were uh, seeking shelter in the church during the, uh, especially at the beginning of the uh, uh, battle for Britain as the Germans were bombing, bombing London. Throughout all of that period when he was so busy with the church and dealing with the war, he still managed to write and to uh, teach uh, consistently. He earned a Ph.D., and he led hundreds of people to salvation in Jesus Christ. After the war, he headed up uh, Britain's Methodist Home Missions Department until he was diagnosed with uh, progressive muscular atrophy. For three years, he slowly died. Uh, he was progressively uh, paralyzed. Finally, he came to the point where he could only move two fingers. But throughout his, his illness, he never uh, faltered, never complained, because he had established four rules for himself early on in, in, uh, in his ministry, especially when he became ill, as it became real, more real to him. I mean, the hope that he had in his eternal future was so real to him that whatever suffering he went through now uh, meant little. This is what uh, Paul talks about when he talks about hope in Romans 8.18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And so for Sankster, he had four rules for dying. He said, number one, I will never complain. Number two, I will keep the home bright. Number three, I will count my blessings. And number four, I will try to turn whatever happens to gain. And so that is what characterized his life so that he could demonstrate in his life the same principle that Paul learned that God's grace was sufficient for him and God's strength would be made perfect in his uh, weakness. So hope, the certainty that we have in Christ, does not disappoint. 
Now, Paul moves on from that statement in Romans 5, 5 to give us a, a brief understanding of love, the basis for love, uh, in verses 6, 7, and 8. And that's probably all the time we'll have to cover uh, cover tonight. So in verse 5, which I covered last time, he connects hope to this love of God that has been poured out uh, by the Holy Spirit to us. And so it is an understanding of this love that is crucial for understanding, uh, understanding God's grace. The love of God has been poured out upon us. Now, what exactly does that mean, and how are we to understand God's, uh, God's love for us? And God's love for us is the foundation for grace. So if we're ever going to get anywhere in the, in the spiritual life, as I pointed out last time, we really have to come to understand, uh, come to understand grace. And this is the, what Paul is beginning to explain in verses 6 through 7, uh, 6 through 8. He says, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died, For the ungodly, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man some would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now there's a lot in these verses, and we need to sort of take them apart uh, bit by bit, but it all wraps around the understanding of God's love and what happened at the cross, not what happens when a person what happens when a person puts their trust in Christ for salvation, but what happened at the cross as the foundation, because it's at the cross that we see God's perfect picture of what love is. Verse six and th- six through eight, we see three terms that I have outlined. I've highlighted in blue that define. A sinner does define the unbeliever. He's without strength. He's called ungodly in verse six. He's called a sinner in verse eight. And then, uh, if you look down in your uh, in the scripture, uh, down to verse uh, ten, we're called enemies. So all of these terms relate to describing the unbeliever in different aspects of his position in relation to God without strength, ungodly, sinner, and an enemy of God. As we look at uh, these verses also, I've underlined a couple of uh, other words that we need to pay some attention to. In verse 6, we need to look at both of the words translated into English as for. And then in verse 7, we need to understand something about this very odd verse about using two different uh, sort of uh, universal principles or statements, one related to a righteous man, one related to a good man. For most of us, those terms are synonymous, and so we have to sort of understand what this means. And I'll be honest with you, I'm not sure I do. I'm not sure, having read commentaries, nobody understands this. Everybody's got a different view. We all understand the basic things being illustrated, but... On the one hand, uh, commentaries are split as to whether these are contrastive ideas or whether the second stanza is simply 
expanding on the first stanza. But either way, Paul's making the same point that man, it's very rare for a human being to give his life for another human being, but God, uh, in contrast, gave his son for all. So we have to understand something about that. So let's just begin with verse 6. I have two words underlined there at the beginning, for and for. Those are actually, in the English, are the same words, so when you look at it, it looks as if, as if in the English this would be the same thing, but we use the English word for in different senses, and actually in the Greek these are two completely different words and express two con- completely different ideas. Then we have the phrase uh, without strength. We have to understand what that means. Also what it means in due time, Christ died. And then the uh, last line, the ungodly, what do these terms uh, mean? Uh, There are four key words that we have to understand as we go through this particular section. And the first is this word that is translated for, the first word, is the Greek word gar, which always introduces uh, either an explanation for something in the sense of giving the cause or reason for something, or in a logical argument, it describes the basis or the foundation for something that has already been, been stated. So it could be translated because, or it tra- should be translated uh, in, in the sense of explaining more fully what has been stated before. So when you look at verse 5, it's very important to understand what is said in verse 5 because verse six, is, 6 through 11 is really going to explain it in terms of its significance. And what has been articulated so forcefully by, by Paul in verse 5 is that hope doesn't disappoint because the love of God has already been poured out poured out upon us. And now we have to unpack it. We have to learn about it. You don't learn about it when you get saved. There's no experience. You don't get the warm fuzzies and you don't get a rosy glow and you don't get all excited and tremble all over, although some people uh, think they do. It doesn't mean that you don't have any emotion at the time that you're saved, but there's no emotion that is the sign, the indicator, the barometer of regeneration, justification, uh, baptism by the Holy Spirit, any of those things. We only come to really understand what happened after we're saved. And that's what Paul's talking about here. Is he's trying to help us to understand all of the wonderful things that we have in Christ and that God gave us at salvation and in justification and what those benefits are for us today. So he begins this explanation, and he starts off by saying, when we were still without strength. Now, this word, uh, this phrase, when we were still, translates just one word in the Greek. And that word has the idea of when when something was in a certain status and it continues uh, to be in that status, when it continues to be that way. And so the, the, the state that we were in was a state that is described as being without strength. And this is the Greek word asthenes, and it literally means without strength. That A at the beginning is what they were, uh, grammarians and wordsmiths, uh, lexicographers refer to as, a, as an alpha privative. It's like our 
prefix un. It negates the word. Sthenes is the word for strength. Now, you can, a person can be without strength in a lot of different ways. Uh, they can be without strength spiritually or morally, or they can be without strength physically. When the word is used to describe somebody who is uh, without strength uh, physically, then it's usually translated ill or sick. And of the uses of this word in the Gospels and Acts, about 70% of the time it refers to somebody who is physically sick or physically uh, ill. They have some sort of disease, and that's the emphasis. But there are still a few times, for example, when Jesus said um, that the uh, soul is willing but the flesh is weak, Use that same word, ostinase, there. And he's talking about a spiritual weakness or inability on the part of people because of the corruption of sin. So in the Gospels and Acts, the primary usage has to do with physical illness, but there's still about a third or so of the uses that refer to a spiritual or moral weakness. In the epistles, from Romans all the way through the rest of the New Testament, uh, the, 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 those proportions shift so that in the epistles, about 70% of the uses of this term relate to uh, spiritual uh, weakness or spiritual inability, spiritual, spiritual weakness, not physical weakness, although a few times it does refer to physical weakness. However, the word is, this is the same word that's used uh, over in James chapter 5, uh, yeah, James chapter 5, and I've talked about that passage uh, before, when it talks about if any among you is sick, let him call for the elders to pray. This is the word, and there it shouldn't be translated sick. It should be translated if anyone is going through a time of spiritual uh, weakness. Remember, the theme of James is all about uh, persevering in times of testing. When times of testing, you don't get sick. Well, you might, but uh, primarily you just become spiritually tired, you want to give up, you want to quit. And so the solution is to call for uh, spiritually mature believers to pray for you that you might endure during those times of, uh, of uh, temptation, those times of spiritual, uh, spiritual weakness. Now that's what it's talking about here because it's talking about uh, we mean believers, but it's talking about believers in their status before they were saved when they were without strength. So it's talking about their spiritual condition and their not inability to do in the sense of of the Calvinist definition of total inability, but in the sense they're, they're unable to do anything to rectify their problem. They're unable to save themselves. They're unable to perform righteousness. They're unable to have do anything to bring about or to cause... Uh, peace with God. And so uh, they are also described here as ungodly. That is, they are uh, without God or any orientation towards God and living like the world. We'll look at the term ungodly in just a minute. So Paul begins by focusing on the way we were uh, when we were continuing in a status before salvation of being spiritually incapable of solving the sin problem. And then he says, in due time, and this is probably a reference to the same idea Paul had in Galatians 4, 4, 
that where Paul said, in the fullness of times, in the fullness of times, uh, Christ came into the world. And it's talking about the fact that God in his plan had a perfect plan, perfect timing, organized and prepared the world in such a way that Jesus came at a time uh, when God had laid the foundation in terms of revelation in the Old Testament. And so it was the right time for him to come. So in due time, that is in the proper time, according to God's plan, Christ died for the ungodly. Now we get to that second English word for, and um, actually I had a uh, typo there. That should be huper in the Greek. I've uh, got, got the Greek word in there for gar instead, but it should be huper here. And huper is used four times in these three verses. And huper is the Greek there are two prepositions in Greek for substitution. The other is peri. Peri is the word that is used most of the time. Huper is used many times for substitution. Usually it's used with a genitive case noun afterwards, and it has this idea of doing something uh, in, in place of or for someone else with that idea of of uh, substitution. So it's the idea here of substitutionary death. Christ died as a substitute for, I like to give an expanded translation there so we get the idea, Christ died as a substitute for the the ungodly. And I don't have the ungodly up here as a term. So ungodly is the term asabase. Sometimes I've used the term eusebeia. Eusebeia is the term that we find over in, for example, Second Peter 1.3, that uh, God gave us everything related to life and godliness, eusebeia. This is the negative of that. Eusebeia is the positive in relation to God. Asabeia is the, or asabeis is the negative, the opposite. Now, there are three forms that this word takes in the New Testament, asabeia, Asabase, which is the form that we have here, and asabeo, which is a, uh, a, a, a verb form, which is only used two times in the New Testament. Now, the first form of the word, which is not the form that's found here, is asabea, and it is found six times in the New Testament, and it is translated as ungodliness in four of those occasions, and twice it's defined as I was just looking at this. I thought I put that in there. No, I backed up. Okay, we'll stop there. Uh, four times it's translated ungodliness and twice as ungodly. Now, in every case except 2 Timothy 2.16, it's clearly used it to describe unsaved men. Now, this is an important thing to observe when we're uh, looking at Scripture and studying Scripture to see how a word is used because uh, word meanings are defined by by usage. And in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse uh, 15, we see a verse that should be familiar to everyone here. In the King James, it was translated, study to show yourselves approved unto God. But in the New King James and in a number of other more modernized English translations, they usually translate it, be diligent to present yourselves approved unto God. Because the, the Greek word that's used there, uh, spudazo, 
has the idea of, of putting everything you've got into something. It's, it's to be diligent, to be totally obsessed with something. But in the context here, it's talking about studying the Word. So studying, to show yourself approved unto God, is a, is a good translation. Uh, but it has the idea of making this a priority and a focus in your life to be a good servant of God, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a work, worker that does not need to be ashamed. And then the last phrase is rightly dividing the word of God. Well, that's where we bring in the idea of, of the word is the focal point for this diligence. And so that relates to the idea of studying. But then there's a contrast in the next verse. Paul's talking to his young protege, Timothy, and he tells him, first of all, to diligently pursue the study of the word so that he can accurately handle it. Uh, and then in verse 16, he says, but in contrast, this is what you should not do. You should shun profane and idle babblings, just the everyday nonsense uh, focus of conversation that most people have on things that have no eternal value. That's what he's getting at. He says, just shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase. See, this is a problem with uh, a loose tongue and an undisciplined uh, mouth, which is what James uh, chapter 3 is all about, those who don't bridle the tongue. So Paul is saying the same thing that James is saying in James 3 is to discipline your mouth. Shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness. So ungodliness is used here of the behavior of a Christian, but what it is saying is, in light of all the other uses of Asabea, Asabea describes either the unbeliever or the behavior of the unbeliever. And so what, uh, in fact, uh, Paul is saying here is, if you don't shun profane and idle babblings, then those who engage in those things, it just ends up producing behavior typical of unbelievers and the world. That's the focal point. So he tells Timothy uh, to avoid this because if you do that, it's just going to increase and you're going to, you're going to, your conversation, your talk is going to sound like that of an unbeliever. So that's the only time this whole word group is used to describe something that applies to a believer, but it's in the context of saying, don't act like an unbeliever. Uh, the second form of the word, which is the word that we find here in the text, asebes, A-S-E-B-E-S, asebes, is also translated ungodly in most of its uses, eight of its nine times in the New Testament. One time it's just translated as ungodly man. And it is an adjectival form, but in almost every instance, it is used of an unbeliever. The, it is Christ who dies for the ungodly. They're unbelievers. Uh, this will become important, and you'll see it when we continue in our study in uh, Jude, because all three forms of this word are found in Jude to describe these false teachers that have invaded the congregation that Jude is uh, addressing. And it shows that these unbelievers, that these enemies that have invaded are not carnal Christians, they are not believers. So 
this is an adjective that always describes unbelievers in passages like 1 Timothy 1.9, 1 Peter 4.18, always describes unbelievers. In 2 Peter 2.5, it describes those who were destroyed in the Noahic flood. They were all unbelievers. So the primary use of this word is always to talk about uh, unbelievers. And then the verb form, which is used twice in the New Testament, 2 Peter 2.6 and Jude 15, uh, both are used to refer to those who were killed uh, under God's judgment at Sodom and Gomorrah. And of course, those who were killed at Sodom and Gomorrah were all unbelievers. The only believers that were there evacuated, and that was Job and his wife and his, uh, his daughters. All the others that were there were uh, unbelievers. So in Romans 5, 6, we have the clear statement that Christ died as a substitute for the ungodly. Now in verse 7, uh, Paul uses the word guard twice uh, to show an explanation or illustration of what he has just said. He's just talked about substitution that Christ died as a substitute for the ungodly. Now he's going to emphasize how unusual this is and how rare it is. And he makes two statements. He says, first of all, for uh, scarcely for, that is, this for is on behalf of or as a substitute for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for, that is, as a substitute for a good man. Someone would even die. I misspoke a minute ago because I just saw two underlined. It's four. The first four is an explanation. The next two fours are who pair, uh, the preposition for substitution. For scarcely as a substitute for a righteous man will one die. Yet, perhaps, for a good man, someone would even die. Now, this is a contrast between righteous and good, or so it seems. In most cases in the New Testament, the term righteous and the term good are used interchangeably or synonymously. Now, if that's the way Paul's using this, he is stating on the one hand, for a right, scarcely for a righteous man one will die. And then he sort of, uh, this is typical in poetry where the next stanza will expand on the previous line. And he says, yet perhaps, uh, and this would emphasize the, the rarity of it, uh, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. Yet in a few rare cases this will happen. That's how uh, some commentators uh, take this. Others see a distinction between righteous and good, righteous being a person who is uh, in and of himself righteous. He's justified. He's righteous in that he has conformed to God's standard. But the good man is someone who is doing good to others, and so he has more of a relationship with people and he's more outgoing and he does things for people. So if somebody who does things for people is, you know, more socially acceptable, more socially involved, so somebody might die for him. Nobody's going to die for the person who is morally upright, but somebody who's been engaged in helping other people and doing good for the community might be someone that they uh, uh, might die for. In that view, these are talking about two different kinds of men. 
The first is just the person who's morally upright. The other is the person who's not only morally upright, but he is engaged in doing good and helping others. And so what Paul would be saying there is you have these two situations. These are about the only two kinds of situations in which somebody might die for somebody else. But in both of these situations, it would be a rare thing. But however you understand this, and I'm not sure which it is, it's, they're both making the same point, and that is within human experience of one human being giving their life for another, this is an unusual and rare thing. This is why we give medals uh, of bravery to people who give their life for other people. It's because this is uh, something that goes above and beyond the call of duty, something that is uh, very unusual and something that is heroic. Uh, John said that no man has a greater love for his brother than that he lay down his life for him. So this is an unusual uh, reality, and it is a demonstration of love. And that is exactly where uh, Paul goes in his explanation in the next verse. In verse 8, he's contrasting God and God's love as demonstrated at the cross with the expected behavior of human beings. Human beings rarely will do this, but God, uh, in contrast, demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, once again, this idea that it happens when we're in antagonism to God, in rebellion to God, and not doing anything that would gain God's favor, make him desire to save us, uh, God is going to demonstrate his love for us. This is the Greek word sunistemi, which means to provide evidence of a personal characteristic or claim through action, uh, demonstration, showing it's giving evidence of something. So what Paul says here is in contrast to, to man's typical modus operandi, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, these, these words that I've underlined here demonstrates love, while, and for are important words. Demonstrates because it shows that God is giving evidence of his love. Love, we have to understand, this is the word agape here. Uh, two primary words for love used in the New Testament. The broadest term is, is agape. The more narrower term, uh, the noun is uh, uh, philos, and philos emphasizes a more intimate love, a love that may involve more emotion, whereas agape is a broader uh, sense of, of love. Uh, underline the word while because this is the same word in the Greek that you have back in Romans chapter uh, Romans 5, verse 6, that when we were still, when we were still without strength, emphasizing that continuing state of being in that passage uh, weak and in this passage now identified as, as sinners, those who have missed the mark. Christ died as a substitute for us, and this is, again, the Greek word huper. Now, this verse is one that we often draw as a parallel with John 3.16. And when you think about these two verses together, they say the same thing, 
You have a couple of extra ideas in John 3.16 that you don't have in, John, in uh, Romans 5.8. But what you do have is, is the same statement about God's love. Many of you could say John 3.16 off the top of your head. I won't ask uh, anybody to stand up and recite at this point, but uh, for God, it usually begins, for God so loved the world. And we have that third word in the English text, so. For God so loved, and I've heard people say, for God loved the world so much. But that's not what it means. It is a Greek adverb there, hutos, which means in such a way. That's just another way of saying what Paul says here, God demonstrates his love. John said it, God loved the world in this way. That he, again, he's emphasizing that this is a demonstration for us, a hands-on demonstration, visual demonstration. We can understand what love is, what God's love is, because God's love is not like our love. God's love is is completely different, and we have to understand that. And this is a starting point for understanding love. God loved us in this way that He gave His uh, unique Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Paul emphasizes the substitutionary aspect of that, and as as uh, pure chance, random chance in the sovereignty of God would have it this morning, somebody sent me a cartoon, which I thought fit perfectly with tonight's lesson. There you have Leon playing charades, and he gets his little assignment, and the word is substitutionary atonement. And so he thinks, as Leon unfurled the piece of paper, he knew that he would never again play charades with ministers. Good fit for tonight. God demonstrated his love for us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died for the ungodly in verse 6. We have this this idea of substitution in verse 7, for righteous man, some would die, yet perhaps for a good man, both have the idea of substitution. And then again, of course, in verse 8. This idea of substitution is inherent to everything that the Bible teaches about how man gets his sin forgiven. And that's very much a part of the gospel. You know, recently, some of you are more aware of this than others, but in recent years, uh, and despite years of good work that the Grace Evangelical Society did, an aberration occurred in their understanding and expression of the gospel several years ago where they uh, began to emphasize that the gospel was, and they just restricted everything to the gospel of John, saying that the gospel was the offer of eternal life by Jesus and that if you were not believing in Jesus for eternal life, then you weren't saved. And then they sort of packed uh, into the concept of eternal life the idea that, well, if you really understand eternal, that means it's something that can't be lost. And if it can't be lost, then you can't have a belief in a salvation that is losable. In other words, if you don't have an assurance of your salvation or you don't have a belief in eternal security, then you weren't really saved because you weren't believing in Jesus for eternal life. Well, see, that was how John expressed the gospel, but Paul talks about it as believing in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. 
And others expressed it that way as well. So you have different ideas in the scriptures uh, related to different facets of the work of Christ on the cross. I can believe in Jesus for justification. But according to GES, if I'm not believing in Jesus for eternal life, then I'm not saved. If I just believe in Je- that Jesus died for my sins, that's not the right thing. If I believe in, in that uh, uh, Jesus gave me... Uh, Forgiveness for sins, it's not the right thing. I have to believe in him for eternal life. That's the gospel. Uh, That was really a a, a total slip on their part uh, in terms of understanding the gospel by just focusing on the gospel of John as the definitive uh, explanation of the gospel. But this idea of just substitutionary payment And believing that Jesus is that substitute goes all the way through the Bible. It starts off with the pictures that we see in the Old Testament with sacrifices. And the whole concept of the petitioner coming before God with a sacrifice on which he would lay his hand. That's a sign of identification and transference. uh, That the lamb or the bullock or whatever the animal was was receiving uh, by imputation the sins of the person bringing the sacrifice and that that animal would then die instead of the individual dying. The animal would bear the penalty instead of the individual paying the penalty. And, of course, the greatest picture of that was what we saw on Sunday morning when I went through the Seder service and went through the whole episode of the 10th plague in Egypt, when God said he would bring the judgment of death comparable to the punishment for sin announced in the Garden of Eden, he would bring the punishment of death upon the firstborn in every household. But God provided a solution, and that solution, which was available to everybody in Egypt, Jew and Egyptian alike, was to take a lamb, select the lamb on the tenth of, the, of Nisan, Uh, examine it for four days to the 14th, then sacrifice the lamb and apply the blood to the doorpost of the house so that all of those who were in the house were covered by the death of that animal as symbolized by the blood on the doorpost. Now, does that mean that everybody in the house agreed with... uh, uh, agreed with uh, the, the sacrifice or necessarily believed in it? Not necessarily. I think that, uh, that that's a leap. Now, among the Jews, we know that, that uh, according to the, the legends of the Jews, no Jew died, uh, no uh, firstborn Jew lost their life, uh, and that all the Egyptians uh, had the firstborn in their house died. But I think that in uh, whether it's uh, biblically informed or not, in Cecil B. DeMille's portrayal of the Exodus event in the Ten Commandments, he uses uh, Edward G. Robinson, who plays Dathan, and uh, a couple of others who are skeptics and they're, they're, they don't really want to believe it, but because they're in a house where someone has put blood on the door, the firstborn doesn't die. And as I thought about that, at least that's hypothetically true. That's a great picture of understanding the reality of unlimited atonement. And unlimited atonement is the idea that Jesus Christ's death 
And his, the substitutionary aspect was indeed for every single person. He paid the sin for everybody. Now, this is seen in a number of key verses, this idea of substitution. Substitution is really the most important idea in understanding this concept of unlimited atonement. In Mark 14.24, which is Mark's rendition of the Last Supper, the Seder that the Lord celebrated, the Passover, the Paschal, Pascha that he celebrated with his disciples the night before he went to the cross when he took the cup. Mark records Jesus saying, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many who pair, shed on behalf of many. Now, the Calvinist who believes in limited atonement will say, ah, see, he didn't say for all, he just said for many, because only the elect, the many, are the ones who are saved. But many can also refer to all. It's not uh, all, all is, and many are words that are used in a exclusive sense and, as, and also used in a somewhat uh, uh, distributive sense. For example, when uh, John says that all the people in Judea and Galilee went out to hear John the Baptist, does that mean that every single person living in Judea and Galilee went out to hear John the Baptist? No, not necessarily. We use the word all in a restrictive sense. You did that with your parents. said, well, everybody's doing it. Well, you didn't mean every single person was doing it. You just said a large number of people were doing it. So we use these terms in a, an, an, uh, an exclusive sense that covers every individual or universal sense and also in a, a more selective sense. Um, so we have to look at other passages to get more precision. Uh, Luke in Luke 22:19 records Jesus uh, breaking the bread at the uh, Seder meal and saying, "This is my body, which is given as a substitute for you." Now, does that mean that Jesus only gave his body as a substitute for those uh, eleven who were still left in front of him? No. See, when Jesus said the many over in Luke with regard to uh, the cup, when he's looking at here, he's not giving a definitive statement about the extent of the atonement. He's emphasizing it's substitutionary. It is given on behalf of others. Uh, John 6, 51, Jesus said, I'm the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, meaning his physical life, which I shall give for the life of the world. Now, John uses the term world in a number of different senses, and this is an extremely broad sense. The world refers to the inhabited planet and those who inhabit it. So here it is an extensive, if not universal, sense here where Jesus says, I shall give for the life of the world. Now, the Calvinist who believes in limited atonement will say, well, see, all he's really saying here is that Jesus is dying for the Jews and Gentiles that there will be both Jews and Gentiles among the elect. But I find that to be stretching the term world quite a bit. The world, as it is used in John, is talking about the inhabited world. God so loved the world, the inhabited world. That's all those who live on the earth. Second Corinthians 5.15 states, He died for all, that those who live, that would be a subset of those for whom he died. He died for all that those who live, that is the number who believed in him, 
should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died uh, for them, substitutionary again, and rose again. In 1 Timothy 2.6, we have uh, another use of this, that he gave himself as a ransom for all. He paid that penalty for all. And then in 1 Timothy 4.10, we read, For it is for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, but especially of believers. See, he died for everyone, but especially believers. So again, we see a distinction between believers and unbelievers for whom he is also the, the Savior. And then Second Peter 2.1 states that false prophets also arose among the people. And these false prophets in Second Peter are the same. Are, are the Second Peter predicts the false prophets that show up uh, later on, and Jude deals with them in the present tense. False prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you. See that future tense who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. There's that word redemption. Denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction among themselves. First John 2, 2 says, And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, that is, believers. And here it uses the even stronger preposition for substitution, peri, but not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. So those last three passages make it very clear that Jesus' death is for for everyone. Now, just have a few minutes, so I want to wrap up, but I want to remind you what we've covered uh, many times in Colossians. In Colossians chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, Paul said, that it is in Christ, Colossians 1.14, in Christ we have redemption. See, in those last few verses I had up here, uh, we talk about propitiation, which is God word. Talk about the false prophets who deny the master who bought them. That's redemption. That is also God word. And 1 Timothy 4.10, the living God who's the Savior of all men. Uh, 1 Timothy 2.6 gave a ransom for all. Three of those passages deal with redemption. One deals with propitiation, all are Godward. Uh, Paul says in Colossians 1.14, in whom we have redemption through the blood, the forgiveness of sins. And I pointed out that that term related to the forgiveness of sins there has to is further explained when we get into Colossians uh, 2.12. Uh, 2.12-14, specifically 13 Though you were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, pointing out the previous condition of the unsaved, dead in sin, he made alive together with him by forgiving you or because he had forgiven you all trespasses. And that's that it refers to a previous action. We know it's a previous action because it occurred at the cross. And we saw that in our study of Colossians 2.14, he forgave you all trespasses because he had already wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he's taken it out of the way by nailing it to the cross. So it was at the cross that that certificate of debt is wiped out. That's expiation. It is the cancellation of that debt. So Christ died for all and the penalties paid at the cross, not when you trust in him, but at the cross. 
So that established the payment of the penalty. The problem is people are still, even though the objective sin penalty is paid for, people are still dead in their trespasses and sins experientially. They need to be regenerated. And they possess, uh, and they don't possess perfect righteousness. They possess their own relative righteousness. They can't get into heaven unless they're regenerate and they possess perfect righteousness. And that only happens when you believe in Jesus as your Savior. That's the unlimited aspect of the atonement. Christ paid the penalty for all. But the limited aspect is that it's only applied to those who believe because it's only by faith in Christ that you are born again and that you receive the imputation of Christ and you're justified. So both are true. There is an unlimited aspect to the cross. It is Godward and it is related to the cancellation of the debt of sin and a forgiveness in that sense of all mankind. But that doesn't change the spiritual status of the unsaved. They're dead in their sins and they are unrighteous. That's only changed by trusting in Christ. Well, as we look at Romans Romans 5, 6 through 8, we see this emphasis on understanding God's work through substitution as demonstrating his love. Next time, I want to come back, talk about that a little bit in terms of the key word that is used of God's love in the Old Testament, and then we will go on to uh, the next three verses to see how this uh, works out in terms of reconciliation, a term that is used uh, the first time in verse 10 and then at the end of verse 11. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to be reminded that there was nothing in us uh, that gave us any value or worth uh, in your eyes, that, that uh, there was nothing in us that was the cause of your salvation generated completely by your, your own character and you freely chose to provide us salvation for us that was not to be based on anything we did, not to be based on something we could somehow feel proud of, not to be based on something we could look at and say, see, that's what I did, but something that was completely uh, founded upon uh, your character and the work of someone else, Jesus Christ, depicted throughout the Old Testament in terms of these animal sacrifices, specifically the lamb, Uh, without spot or blemish. And it was that Lamb, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who died for our sins. Father, we pray that you would help us to think about this, reflect upon it as we seek to understand what it really means to love. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.